Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we're joined by laryngologist Dr. Dale Ekbaum, and we will be discussing Zanker diverticulum. Dr. Ekbaum, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Jason. Hello, everyone. I first wanted to start with presentation. Can you describe the classic patient who walks into your clinic who has a Zanker diverticulum? Yes, yeah, they all basically have dysphagia, and it's it's a it's more of a solid food dysphagia. It can be liquid as well, choking on liquids, um, regurgitating food, and regurgitation is is one of those classic questions that uh, that you'll see with Zankers, uh, specifically undigested food. Even even uh, several hours after eating, uh, they'll let you know that yes, they you know food has come back up. It's undigested food. And then you know it's likely a, a pouch or Zanker's diverticulum. They can have you know a sensation of food sticking as well, and and um, occasionally coughing or throat more throat clearing. Occasionally uh, pneumonias, but not very often with these. But sometimes it, it can you can aspirate some of these contents. And who's the type of patient who walks into your clinic with uh, Zanker? Yeah, typically uh, ages you know sixties to nineties. And more often men than women, but yeah, it's a it's older uh, age, a population that's coming in, and uh, it, you just don't see it in the young very often. Mm-hmm. And how how common is this? It's you know it's it's very rare, Jason. It's uh, anywhere between one in ten thousand, maybe up to one in a thousand. But we just you know there's a lot that a lot of patients that are probably asymptomatic that we. We don't know they have it, you know, smaller zinkers, but um, the ones we do know, it's a wide variation of numbers there between one in a thousand and one in 10,000 people. And when you see these folks in clinic, what are some questions that you're asking them to tease out? Is this a zinker? Is this something else going on? And what are maybe some more concerning presentations that you see? You know, specifically, you know, we're asking again about regurgitation of food, um, we're, we're asking some of the same questions I was mentioning before, but you do want to look at weight loss as well. I mean, in terms of concerning uh, symptoms, weight loss, and, uh, and if they've had aspiration pneumonias, again, not very common, but if they've had that, then this needs to be someone that uh, is really on the priority list. You know, we see a fair number of patients that come through our doors that have had recurrences as well, too, after surgeries. And so so those um, those are those folks are struggling even more as well. And uh, once you kind of do your HPI, you've asked them about their symptoms, and you're honing in on this. You suspect a zanker. What are you looking for in physical exam with your first visit? Yep, we always do a, 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 a flexible scope, um, and we want to take a look at the true vocal fold mobility. You know, if you do one of these open treatment approaches, then there's a higher risk of recurrent lesion nerve injury. So you do want to make sure both vocal cords are moving, that there's not already a immobility. And then also you're looking for a pooling of secretions, uh, you know, specifically in the vollecula and the piriform sinus. Um, often you'll see it on, on uh, one side more than the other, more in the left piriform sinus. And sometimes you'll see those secretions spilling over onto the true vocal folds. And so that's kind of, the, that's the that's main area you're looking at, uh, pharynx and everything else, and that upper air digestive tract too. 
And you're not able to actually appreciate the diverticulum on flexible laryngoscopy, correct? That's correct. Yep. You can't see it. Uh, you can just see the effects and the, the pooling effects sometimes. And is there anything externally that you can palpate that makes you more suspicious? Or are there ones that are particularly bad that you can appreciate externally? Yeah. You know, if it's a larger diverticulum, you can you can push on the neck more often on the left side than the right. And you can see a little more of the pooling that'll come up possibly or hear gurgling sounds uh, at times as well. And moving on to pathophysiology, we've talked about the presentation and kind of uh, how you first evaluate these patients, but what is a Zanker diverticulum? Yeah, so it is, it's an outpouching of, of, of mucosa. So it's not a true diverticulum. A true diverticulum includes the muscle, right? And, but this is just the mucosa. So this is a pseudo diverticulum. And it's this herniation of, of the mucosa that comes out between the uh, cricopharyngeus muscle and the just above the at the level of the inferior pharyngeal constrictor. So it's it's coming out above, and that's one of the key points too. It's above the cricopharyngeus here compared to other uh, diverticulum that are out there. And can you talk about? Um... In this conversation, we talk about pulsion versus traction diverticulum. What's the difference, and where does Zanker fall? So uh, Zanker's is is uh, is definitely it's more of a pulsion diverticulum. You know, you can see what looks like a Zanker's, but it it it's more of a traction diverticulum. Sometimes from you know an ACDF surgery, anterior cervical discectomy fusion surgery, uh, can can uh, these the area in the in the posterior mucosa of the esophagus or or muscle of the esophagus can get kind of stuck on on that area and be pulled back. So that's that's the definition of a traction uh, diverticulum. But this is this is more of a pulsion. So somehow uh, due to increased luminal pressure. And it's, it's hard to, it, we still don't fully grasp the reason behind it um, when, when thinking about why, why some people get this and why some people don't. And is it truly uh, increased pressure? We know that there's, we think that there's more of a CP muscle, uh, you know, kind of a discoordination that occurs uh, um, that possibly doesn't, you know, there's an incomplete relaxation of that muscle and allows for more, uh, 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 pooching out of that, of that uh, mucosa above. It could be abnormal timing as well of that CP muscle, um, increased resting tone. And, you know, there's other, there's other theories out there as well. And, uh, when I've uh, kind of read about or heard conversations about Zanker diverticulum, it's hard to avoid talking about the other types of diverticula that exist in this area. Can you tell us a little bit about those other diverticula and how they compare both in anatomy and and uh, maybe thoughts about treatment approach? So yeah, this is um, this is important as well because the Kill- Killian Jameson is another diverticulum that you can see in that. That one is more lateral uh, than the uh, Zenker's diverticulum. Uh, the Killian Jameson is often, uh, uh, it's, and, and actually it's not coming above the cricopharyngeus. Instead, it's just below the cricopharyngeus and coming from more lateral positions. So you really have to be careful on the Killian Jamesons uh, uh, with the recurrent laryngeal nerve. 
In fact, with those, um, the standard of care would be an open approach to protect that nerve. So you find that Killian Jameson and then you, uh, you remove it in an open approach. There are some reports of doing it uh, um, endoscopically, but, um, but the standard of care would be open for Killian Jameson. And then there's also a Lemire um, diverticulum, and that is also below the cricopharyngeus, but that's a little more posterior. It's not lateral. And the Lemire is a true diverticulum, which means it includes the muscle layers. So it doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't, it's not a false or pseudo diverticulum. It's a true diverticulum. So that's different than the, than the Killian Jameson and Zankers. You can also have lateral, you know, fring, you can have pharyngoceles up higher. You can have other diverticulum of the esophagus as well. And one of the questions I like to ask is when we're talking to patients about uh, their pathology, how do you counsel patients on why they need to get this treated and what happens if you don't treat it? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question because it's, you know, some of these are not that symptomatic and other ones really are. And so uh, just in terms of deciding when, when would you recommend that treatment? I mean, I, you know, some of these can, uh, can progress as time goes on. Other ones don't, and we don't know which ones are going to progress. So what I typically tell patients is if they are having symptoms, you know, if it's very mild symptoms, they don't have to do anything, of course, or if they have no symptoms, they don't have to do anything, of course. But if it's, if it's a mod, if it's moderate or it affects them or they have to slow down with their eating or they're ever having some dysphagia or regurgitation, you know, it's, it's easier to operate on a 60 year old than it is on an 80 or 90 year old, or likewise, if they come in age 75 and they're healthy, you know, what are they going to be like when they're age 90 with a slightly larger diverticulum and now more moderate or severe symptoms? And are we going to be at a state at a place where we can operate? So I, I tend to recommend moving forward with these because in, in our hands, I mean, typically recurrence is pretty low and, and, uh, they tend to do very, very well. Is there any risk of uh, malignant transformation in these? Yeah. You know, that's another, yes, thank you. That's another reason uh, to consider, uh, operating because it's about a half a percent. So 0.5%. Some people move it even up to 1%, but I don't think it's that high. It's more of a 0.5% chance of a, of finding a squamous cell carcinoma, right there uh, that could be causing the zankers or within the zankers. So that's, um, that's another uh, reason to consider doing, doing surgery. And after hearing kind of these symptoms and performing your physical exam, what else do you put on the differential diagnosis for these patients? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because a lot of patients come to see me already with a swallow study so we know what it is, you know, but if they don't have a swallow study, they come in with dysphagia, boy, it can be all kinds of different things, as you know. Um, you know, when you're asking your your history and you hear um, regurgitation or you hear solid food dysphagia, you know, we think about other, um, other narrowings of the esophagus, like a esophageal stricture, a CP uh, muscle hypertension. Uh, hypertrophy or just the CP, uh, CP bar, you know, being tight without his anchors. Um, you can have cancer in there. Um, we ask about any previous trauma to the neck or that area. 
uh, you can have inflammatory uh, lesions that, you know, there's, there's actually a myopathy, this inclusion body myositis, which is a inflammatory myopathy. It's kind of a progressive uh, muscle disorder with muscle inflammation, weakness, atrophy. And we see a fair amount of that um, at our institution. And most of those patients will have CP muscle involvement. So less of about as anchors, but more of a CP muscle. Uh, there can be motility disorders, you know, you know, achalasia, esophageal spasm. You can have other mus muscle um, uh, disorders like muscular dystrophy, which causes weakness in muscles, or uh, myasthenia gravis. Patients that have had strokes in the past uh, can have discoordination of the muscle and, and end, up with, uh, end up with swallowing difficulties at multiple levels in their swallow, of course, not just at the CP at multiple levels. And it also can be, you know, idiopathic too. So, so you see this patient in clinic and say they don't have any imaging or further workup. Uh, what is your workup for this patient? Yeah. So we, we always want to get a swallow study and, um, this, this can be a little confusing when it's ordered and it's good for us to remember the different terminology out there for these swallow studies. So let's start with a, a modified barium swallow study is the same as a video fluoroscopic swallow study. And that assesses uh, everything above the cricopharyngeus and to the level of the cricopharyngeus is seen with a video fluoroscopic swallow study. That's typically done with a speech language pathologist. And it's very helpful because they look at all the different levels of swallowing difficulties, the, the squeeze of the pharynx, the elevation of the, of the larynx with the swallow, um, then they can see the, the, the CP muscle and, and as they look at all the different levels, the tongue base, you know, retraction and all that happens. And then that's in combination with the radiologist too. So that's a modified barium swallow or a video fluoroscopic swallow study. Now a barium swallow is the same as esophagram. And so, uh, that can also show as anchors. And, but that will just show the esophagus. So it shows all the way from the CP muscle and then down to the gastroesophageal junction and sometimes into the, into the stomach. And so that will also show it. But I tend to order a video fluoroscopic swallow study with esophagram, or it's also, again, called modified barium swallow with follow-through or with barium swallow. Uh, because I want to see the whole length of the, the swallow. There can be other things that, that you can have as anchors as well as a motility disorder. So you can have, you need to look in the esophagus and see um, if there's a motility disorder, if it's severe, you can have a lot, of, a lot more reflux uh, in that type of patient than you would typically see in others. So that's, that's one of those things you really have to get the whole length of the swallow, video fluoroscopic swallow study, all, you know, all at the start of the swallow from the opening of your mouth, all the way down to the gastroesophageal junction. And is there any role for CT or MRI in these patients? No, I, I have not gotten a CT, I guess, unless you see, unless you see a, a, an unusual, you know, prominence or push, you know, that makes you think, boy, that doesn't look like a regular Zankers, then, then it could be a cancer, you know, and then I would get a CAT scan. And I've seen uh, that there are some staging systems for uh, Zanker diverticulum. Um, could you tell us, you know, how useful these staging systems are 
and uh, how you apply them to your clinic? Yeah, you know, we um, there are different staging. So there's, I guess, there's three of them: the Leahy, the Morton, Van Oberbeek is the other. But I, I don't uh, in in clinics we don't use these almost ever. I mean, we what we do is we look at the the size of the pouch. And I I've read a lot of literature too, and I mean, there's there's some that report on using these staging systems, but not many. So most of us are just looking at the size of the zinkers, and that's the most important thing. And that's kind of what the staging systems are lists, you know, uh, based on the size, basically. So you've seen this patient um, in clinic. You're suspicious of a zinker. You work them up with the um, modified barium with follow-through esophagram. So you've made the diagnosis of zinker, and now it's time to talk about treatment, uh, which I think is going to be the meat of our discussion. Can you tell us... um, First, uh, what are the treatment options and how do you choose which treatment option to pursue? Sure. So there's, there's a variety of options. I mean, I think all of us have our go-to option that uh, we've gotten good at and we feel confident with, uh, but there's the endoscopic or um, approaches and then there's the open approaches. And I, I tend to do a lot more uh, endoscopic, which is the transoral uh, through the mouth approach, um, and uh, typically use a rigid laryngoscope, and and I often use laser. So there's an endoscopic laser diverticulotomy, and that's where you basically uh, laser the division between the pouch and the esophagus, just to open it up all the way down to the the base of the pouch until you see the buccopharyngeal fascia. And then you try not to violate that um, because then you'll get into the retropharyngeal space fat, which can cause crepitus and other problems. So that's the laser laser technique. Now, there's also a stapler technique. The nice thing about the laser technique, too, is the diverticuloscope, you can use a smaller diverticuloscope. So I can, on almost everyone, I feel like I can get the rigid approach done if I'm using a laser. Whereas if you do the stapler approach, you need to use a weirda diverticuloscope, which is a little bit large, larger diverticuloscope, and the flanges uh, of the scope open up at the end and to, to show you the, the pouch. And that one is the one that you need to use if you're going to staple. And then it's a GIA stapler that's used, and, and uh, you, you place it over that Again, that partition between the um, the pouch and the esophagus, and you staple down on it. And of course, these staplers, as we know, have about a centimeter and a half or so of of no staples at the tip. So that is uh, that's a problem um, in in my eyes, just because even though these patients they all seem to do really well, no matter what technique you use. I wonder about recurrence rates and other things when you have left about a center, semi-year and a half bar. Now, some people will try to pull up uh, uh, on that and, and then restaple. You know, you can restaple it again and get a lot of it, but you still have that end of the stapler that doesn't have staples. Another endoscopic approach is the, the flexible approach, too. And that, um, that's uh, newer over the last 10 years or so with GI uh, doing a lot of these. Um, and uh, that's, again, using a needle knife, a flexible scope, uh, endoscope through the mouth, and, and then uh, finding where that partition is and just dividing that partition. And it's a moving target a little bit with that. And then the final approach on this quick overview here of approaches is the open. 
and uh, that's a nice approach as well, just going through the neck, uh, usually more often the left side than the right, and you go down to the, uh, you place a bougie in the esophagus so you can find that easily, and also so that when you find the pouch, you staple the base of it or you cut and sew the base of it, and if you have a bougie in there, then you don't, you, would, you wouldn't tighten it down too much in that location. So that's kind of the overview of the different approaches. And going back to the endoscopic approach, I feel like it's difficult for, you know, from a resident standpoint to fully um, understand what is being stapled or what is being lasered. Can you speak in a little bit more detail what you're uh, taking down and how it uh, improves the patient's swallowing? Yeah. So there's, you know, you have the pouch and then you have your esophagus. And so when you place your rigid scope uh, into the mouth and you, you find, you know, you follow it down into the piriform sinus and then sweep it over and uh, place it more midline and, and the posterior flange falls into the, into the pouch in the back and the anterior flange falls into the esophagus. And then you're looking at that, um, partition in between, which includes the cricopharyngeus muscle. And so what you're inside, what you're lasering through or stapling through the first level is the mucosa, and it's quite thick, surprisingly thick. And then you get into muscle, and you're lasering right through muscle, the cricopharyngeus. And then the next area is, is often some scar and fibrotic change, fibrofatty change. And you're lasering through that and you're using your suction to continue to see, okay, am I, am I down through this and I'm at the base of the pouch where it's going to be a road home? You know, you want to try to allow food to go into that pouch and then straight down into the esophagus. So you don't want any, you don't want any ridge there any, any longer. So that's, that, those are kind of the areas that you get down to until you reach that buccal fascia. And then um, for the external approach, how often do you do a CP myotomy with the diverticulectomy? Yes, thank you for bringing that up. You, you do that every time. You do that every time. And so that's super important. Otherwise, you'll get recurrences, higher chance of recurrences. So you do have to cut through the CP muscle. Again, it has some scar and fibrotic change to it as well. Uh, and you have to remove the entire CP all the way down until you're seeing the blue hue of the, of the bougie through through the uh, through the tissue, so you want it very thin. So we've talked about possible treatment options, including endoscopic and external. The endoscopic is more um, kind of, in a sense, marsupializing the diverticulum, where the external approach is more of a diverticulectomy with CP myotomy. Is that a fair way of saying that? Yes. Yeah, I would say that's a fair way of saying it. I mean, I think what you know, there was one thing that we're we're trying to. Um, do more of at least me here at our institution is is endoscopically you can actually remove the sac too so that's being done a few centers um, but the, it's typically a mars uh, an opening up of the sac and then so it flows into the esophagus doing an endoscopic approach and uh, and then versus removing the diverticulum just like you said through an open approach and this is a kind of a, a big discussion, but could you highlight the pros and cons of external versus endoscopic? And then we can also kind of go into how you counsel patients on outcomes, expectations, and prognosis for the given treatment approach. So there needs to be more research on all of this, of course, but 
what uh, has been thought in the past, and there is some data in the past, is that open might uh, uh, be better in terms of decreased recurrence rate and, and uh, improvement in dysphagia scores. But more recently, there was a, a systematic review in dysphagia in 2019, um, a group out of Cincinnati, and they looked at pooled quality of life outcomes, at least, open versus endoscopic laser versus endoscopic stapler. And they, they in that group, um, there may have been a trend towards open having a slightly better quality of life, but it did not prove that the open was superior. So they all, all approaches seem to give a, a, quite a, a significant improvement in, in swallowing and quality of life scores. And patients are very happy with, it seems like with, with all of these uh, different options. In terms of some of the cons and thinking about adverse effects uh, and problems afterwards, um, you know, I, 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 there's been some studies that have shown decreased uh, uh, recurrence rate when using a CO2 laser versus endoscopic stapler, uh, just again because you can get to the base of that pouch. So that's one thing in my mind I think about is I how to how to allow for the the least amount of recurrences and so I I tend to move towards a laser uh, instead of stapler for that reason but the stapler some of the pros on that is is some studies have shown decreased length of hospitalization compared to the CO2 laser uh, maybe decreased MPO status because it's all closed you know and and I uh, and and the crepitus rate is um a little less with stapler than with a laser approach uh, transorally or a flexible approach as well. So um, I think those are some of the things I think about, you know, there, when it comes to adverse events, I can speak to another uh, couple retros or another couple um, systematic reviews I recently read as well and meta-analyses on the flexible approach specifically one was in 2016, systematic review, another was 2018. And they, you know, these, uh, one of the difficulties that I have with the flexible approach right now is we don't have long-term follow-up, so we don't know the recurrence rate. So I, I feel like the recurrence rate could be higher in an approach where it's a moving target and you don't know where, you don't, you don't go down to the buccal pharyngeal fascia. You just, you just typically don't from what I, what I, uh, hear about and talking to the GI doctors, and there's more adverse events in terms of bleeding from this one retrospective uh, review. Bleeding was 13% overall and 17% for greater than four centimeter diverticuli. Less bleeding and perforation risk for uh, uh, for smaller sizes. There was one final review. Oh, and then another. The one in 2016 spoke to the recurrence rate of about 11% with the flexible approach. Then there was another look at uh, adverse events recently in our literature in, in, in the ENT journal, the Odo Hudnick journal, the White Journal. And that was a nice meta-analysis as well from multiple centers. That one didn't didn't show um, a difference in adverse events between flexible and, and rigid approaches, except in bleeding and recurrence. So bleeding with a flexible approach was around twenty percent. But we might be under-reporting bleeding 
um, uh, with our rigid approaches too. I mean, we all see bleeding at the time of surgery, but we can control it better. This bleeding is afterwards reported in 20% of flexible versus less than 10% in rigid and a higher recurrence rate was seen in flexible too. So those are some of the pros and cons and thinking about some of the different techniques. Could you also speak a little bit to the external approach? Sure. So um, the external approach is nice. Uh, I, I use this, first of all, when I can't get it done through an endoscopic approach. So for me, in my hands, that's about, you know, less than 5% of the time because I almost always can get it done endoscopically. I also sometimes move to an open approach if it is a multiply recurrent patient or if it is a large Zenker's pouch. So something over, you know, five centimeters. And then you should think about, okay, well, you can do this endoscopically. It's just, a, it's a long way to divide the pouch and you think about if you're if you're dividing five or six centimeters of partition, you know you're still going to get a lot of improvement for that patient, but there might be a, a greater chance of recurrence there. You also have affected, um, you know, a, a significant you know six centimeters of upper esophagus with that lasering through and, and creating that di- dilated area when maybe you could have just gone to the operating room, opened it up. And then just in a diverticulectomy there, and then preserve the rest of the esophagus around it with, you know, of course, with the CP myotomy at the same time. So overall, I, in, in, for larger diverticuli, I think about open approach for ones that I can't do endoscopic in and maybe multiply recurrent, although even those I often will start with endoscopic. And what's the postoperative convalescence like between the open versus the uh, endoscopic approach? Yeah, postoperative, uh, you know, I think overall it's pretty similar. I mean, I, you know, I usually watch these uh, one night in the hospital and uh, and make sure there's no crepitus or any problems and then send them home. We uh, start with clear liquids, uh, uh, I do at least for the first uh, day, and then I move into three days of, of a full liquid, which soups, smoothies, ice cream, that type of thing, and then three days of soft diet and then and then a regular diet after that. So it's pretty similar, um, you know. Theoretically, if you've stapled someone, you can send them home same day, you know, with the stapler. Uh, versus laser, I would probably recommend watching them. You know, you could also send them home, but then they could follow up um, soon. But you got to check their neck to make sure there's no crepitus for uh, for the laser approach. And you know, it's interesting. The endosco- the flexible endoscopic. I, I know the GI doctors. Most of them, most of them, um, will often send their patients home. At least in our institution, and and it might be different in other institutions, of course. So, but they're used to doing more outpatient and then following up over the phone and seeing how patients are doing. So it can be done that way too. But I I just like to be safe on the laser ones that I do because there's a certain number of them that have crepitus. Um, I was just going to speak to that just briefly too. The crepitus rates are all over the place. Like what is the chance of crepitus? It's hard to know, but I think we underreport it because there's a certain number of people that have just crepitus in the anterior neck. That's just kind of just barely there and that can worsen, you know? So if I see someone that might be up to 10% of patients. And if I see someone that has that, then I like to keep them one more day in the hospital. 
and I just make sure it doesn't progress. Now there are some that have a lot of crepitus, you know, but if it's a if it's a lot of crepitus, then you think, well, the hole is a little larger, and it might take a little more time to heal. So then I need to put in a feeding tube, you know. So I'll put in a feeding tube for those, and maybe that's like two or three percent rate of of that, maybe even four percent. Um, but um, in the literature, it's more like two to three. And so I think some of them need a feeding tube, but if you have just a small amount of crepitus, I I, I've, you know, I consider it a, almost like a micro tear, a really small hole that is going to heal really quickly. So I keep them on clear liquid diet for maybe a few days, you know, to, to make sure that that air is at least stable or starting to turn, starting to disappear. And then they move, move along with the diet. And I don't typically put a feeding tube in those. And provided, you know, you have a, a normal post-operative course, no crepitus or anything like that, how do you follow up with these patients after surgery? Yes. So I always like to do a, a three-month follow-up with a swallow study. Um, I think that really uh, gives us a sense of, has have we been able to remove the entire pouch? Is there still a pouch there? And then it, it goes over how, you know, we talk about their symptoms. We always like to do our quality of life before and after. Usually they eat 10 and the RSI. Once in a while, the reflux can be a little worse in these patients too. So you always have to discuss that with patients as well. But yeah, typically a three-month follow-up. And then I like to do a check-in. It can be either, you know, it could be telemedicine. It could be telemedicine even, um, just a quick phone call or a video call or or a quick visit just to see how they're doing in a year. Very cool. Well, this has been uh, a great discussion about Zanker. Um, before I move into our summary, is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't talked about? No, I think, I mean, I think that's really good. I, I just, in, in just thinking, you know, going through the, the uh, list of complications and what we discussed with patients, I, I did not mention infection or mediastinitis. That is a risk as well. So, um, that's something to remember to discuss with patients, and I typically put them on antibiotics afterwards as precautionary. Um, so that's the last thing I just had forgot to mention that before. Sure thing. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Anything else you'd like to add? No, I think you summed it up in a nutshell. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I'll move on to the summary now. Zanker diverticulum is a false diverticulum that presents uh, mainly in older patients, men more than women, with symptoms of dysphagia, coughing, globus, halitosis, and other symptoms. Uh, this is classically described as a pulsion diverticulum at the level of the cricopharyngeus muscle. And workup mainly includes a video swallow study with esophagram, which will radiographically demonstrate the pouch diverticulum. Treatment options are uh, primarily surgical and involve endoscopic stapling or laser and also the external approach with a CP myotomy and diverticulectomy. Overall, patients do quite well with the surgery with improvement in symptoms. There are some uh, adverse effects like crepitus and some other things, but those are, are pretty rare. Uh, and the choice around surgery is kind of surgeon dependent and can also be dependent on the, um, on the type of diverticulum. Now I'll uh, move into the question asking portion of uh, our time. As a reminder, I'll ask a question, wait a few seconds to give you some time to think or press pause, and then uh, give the answer. 
So the first question is, describe the location of Zanker's diverticulum and the two other main types of diverticula that we described today at the level of the cricopharyngeus. So a Zanker's diverticulum, again, is a uh, pseudo-diverticulum that occurs posteriorly between the cricopharyngeus muscle and the inferior pharyngeal constrictor muscle. There's also a Killian-Jameson diverticulum that occurs just inferior to the cricopharyngeus, and this is more lateral than posterior. And there's also the Lemire's diverticulum, which is also inferior to the cricopharyngeus and uh, occurs more posteriorly. Next question is, how is Zanker's diverticulum diagnosed? Zanker's diverticulum is diagnosed using a video swallow study with esophagram. And uh, there are staging systems around this, uh, which are not typically needed to be used. And we usually just measure the length of the pouch. And the um, imaging will just demonstrate an outpouching at the level of the cricopharyngeus. And for our last question, describe the surgical options and how one might choose which surgical option to pursue for treatment of a Zanker's diverticulum. Again, we had a good conversation about this. There are a few options. There's endoscopic, which can be laser or stapler, as well as flexible. These avoid an external scar and are uh, generally very successful. Uh, and then there's an external approach, which is a CP myotomy with diverticulectomy. Uh, this is also very uh, successful and might be reserved for larger diverticula or recurrent diverticula, but again, this is a nuanced topic and is uh, surgeon dependent. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.